Welcome to Assignment, the official podcast of the Mountain View MFA program at Southern New Hampshire University. I'm Rebecca Dragon, alongside Jillian Kemmerer. Welcome back to another episode of the Assignment Podcast. I'm Jillian Kemmerer, and today we have an esteemed alum of the Mountain View program that my co-host, Rebecca, has been so excited to bring onto the program when she told me that we had a working librettist who is an alum of Mountain View. I said, first of all, no way, and second of all, we have to get him immediately. Um, so we have been very lucky to steal him from the opera world today, just for a little while, to talk about his amazing career and inspiration. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce David Simpatico. So David is a playwright, librettist, and performance artist whose work has been presented at major theaters around the globe, including London's Hammersmith Apollo, Lincoln Center, Williamstown Theater Festival, and the New York Shakespeare Festival. Career highlights include the stage adaptation of High School Musical for Disney Theatricals, The Life and Deaths of Alan Turing, a full-length opera, Justine Chen's The Composer, commissioned by American Lyric Theater, The Screams of Kitty Genovese, a music drama, Will Todd's The Composer there, and the libretto for Pulitzer Prize winner Aaron J. Kernis's Garden of Light, New York Philharmonic at Avery Fisher Hall, one of my favorite venues in the world, conducted by Kurt Masser. And his latest play, Ex Gay Bar, received honorable mention in the 2021 Carlo Anani International Playwriting Prize. He lives deep in the woods of Rhinebeck, New York, with his husband, Robert, and wonder dog, Elmo, who, if you go on his website, you can see some lovely photographs of us. <laughs> I am so excited about this. Rebecca, how the hell did we get someone as as impressive as David Spadigo on this podcast? Well, like most things in my life, it started with a sudden and obsessive idea that I would take my background in theater and my education at Mountain View and start, I'm, I'm going to write, I'm going to write opera. Like I just started thinking this. And so I doing all this research. I'm listening to all these modern operas. I'm finding, are there any resources where I can learn about how to write a libretto? Is And in my mad internet searching, um, up came David Simpatico. And I was completely shocked to see that he had graduated from Mountain View MFA. And I got to say, David, you've got to be the most, probably the most niche student that has made its way through the Mountain View program. Um, you know, fiction writers and memoir, people writing memoir are a dime a dozen. We are all a dime a dozen and uh, at, the, at any program. And here you are, librettist has gone through Mountain View. So I guess I just wanted to start out and ask you, you know, how, how, how did this happen? How did you get into writing libretto, start, first of all, and, uh, libra, you know, libretti, first of all, and then how did you end up at Mountain View? Well, um, first of all, thanks for talking to me this morning. It, it's, yes. a, it's a trip. Um, how did I start working with, in, in opera? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I started out as a performance artist. Uh, singing, I used to sing in the performance art, so it's kind of like a, a gestalt therapy session on mm. pitch. And uh, and I started discovering my voice on my feet in front of an audience. And I would writing non-musical work, non-musical work, and then uh, Aaron Kernis, who's a, I had met through friends, we became um, fans of each other's work, and he's a fantastic composer. Uh, 
and he was working on something on the Millennium Symphony that was a major uh, uh, commission from Disney. It was right after they had, uh, I guess they had a big success with uh, Beauty and the Beast on Broadway, and then they offered these two composers, Michael Turkey and Aaron Kernis, these major commissions to be done um, with Kurt Mazur conducting. And, uh, and so Aaron, ran into problems with his librettist and I came in to replace that librettist and I had like three months to do it and a lot of this score had already been written so um it was my baptism of fire and and you know Aaron Aaron won the Pulitzer for music because he's brilliant and he's really exacting and it was a fantastic way to learn without time to worry about it because I was also working a full-time job and doing this thing, and and it turned out great. Uh, I, you know, you have to work the poetry of of the libretto for a choral symphony, um, and for any for opera. But you really, it comes down to the syllable and and the vowel and w what can be sung and what sounds better mm. on an open, sustained note than not. And are you getting the full intention of the story inside the poetry across to the music that exists already. So, like I said, I didn't have time to, to be afraid. And I just, uh, you know, I did it. We, it was pretty cool. Um, and we wound up and that was a major event at Disney. And I worked with Kurt Mazur and uh, watched him conduct like method acting for music. You know, he would never talk about notes. He would always talk about feeling. And then uh, through Aaron, uh, he got me in touch with uh, this thing, Performance Art League in London, uh, in Kent, England, right? And so I went over there for a 10-day workshop. It was my first time. They take five writers, five composers, and they boot camp you, and they mix and match you over uh, different exercises. Like the first thing we had to do was write a 30-second opera, whatever it is, go. And so you had a minute. <laughs> you had 30 minutes to write half a minute. And, uh, and so then uh, that's where I met a lot of great people. And it was on this um, Jacobean farm as a working milk farm and winery. Because, you know, they had vineyards, so dinner was fun. And that's where I met Will Todd, and we started working. I had come over with an idea that I was like, well, if I want to write music, I want to get into it. I want to write for music. Um, and I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up knowing the story of Kitty Genovese. And uh, a painter that I really like, Jerome Serkin, has this great big painting called The Screams of Kitty Genovese. And I was like, A, I love the title, taking it. And B, and it's this great painting of this woman sitting up in her bed, and she's naked, and her window's open. You see the the breeze blowing the thing and she's just like looking and she's heard something mm. and so i was like all right i wanted to explore the 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 difference and the and the similarities between an aria and a scream right because they're both vocal expression they're extreme vocal expression so that's where i got the idea for that and then i was like all right will um let's try this let's i wanted to try this will todd out this composer who's not like one of my best friends and I wrote this 
love song for uh, a guy with a hunting knife who's going out to find a victim. And so it's his, and it became this song, Winston in the Night. And he, we wrote that in 20 minutes. I'm like, all right, you'll do. And so while we were there, we wrote the, the first eight minutes at the heart. And then that pushed us, that got a big response. And then I got invited to the uh, O'Neill Center the William O'Neill uh, Music Theater Conference. And we got invited there twice. So we wound up going back and forth from the O'Neill to English National Opera Workshop to the O'Neill to English Opera Workshop, where we completed it within two years. And then it took us a decade to get to the final mm. um, form that it's in when we went to uh, Scotland in 2009. And so that's, but it, but it took all that development and multiple times to really hear what we were doing. Uh, and it, I think it turned out great. Um, so that's, that's kind of really how I got into working opera. And then I started playing around and I, I like to do new things. Once I've done something, I tend to look for the variation or what's next. Um, um, I forget where I'm at in my little story. <laughs> ah, well, I actually, I actually thought of something I want to ask you based on all please, of these. Please, me up. Yeah, is that, um, do you remember what the 32nd opera was? Yeah, it was just, <laughs> I think you just said hello or something stupid. I don't work great under pressure. Okay. <laughs> I'm not a diamond for Christ's sake. Um, no, I was had this guy come in and say uh, something ironic. No, it was, it was that stupid, but it was simple. It was like, come in, have a message, have an, a reaction yeah. and you know, it's like in and out, in and out. <laughs> opera in 30 seconds. Sorry. I love it. <laughs> but this, like, actually, this gets to something that I had wanted to ask you because I'm so fascinated by the fact that when you're writing a libretto for an opera, you've got two artists speaking two totally mm -hmm. different languages who have to find a way to make both of their languages work at the same time, music and word. And I was wondering, you know, just about that process of collaboration in general, but also especially like what usually comes first, the words or the music, or it doesn't matter. The idea, mm. and it does matter. Uh, uh, to me, um, I much, I think it's standard that words come first um, uh, because the words inspire the music. Mm. Uh, that's not a fact, that's not a given rule. My first thing with Aaron, I, I inherited like 90% of the music. So, all right, cool. Um, but it's, it's the way, I find it uh, most successful is to have an idea and it usually generates it so far it's generated for me as the librettist I've had the idea and then uh, the composer or you find a composer who you a you want to work with and that you can sit in a room with for the next two or three years or 10 and um, <laughs> they have an affinity for the story that you want to tell and then they mm. have their own response so like with the the life and deaths of Alan Turing that was my idea about exploring the the inner and outer life of this genius who impacted all our lives and saved the world and, and then was destroyed by it. It's like, well, that's operatic. And then Justine Chan, <laughs> who was my composer, she said, oh, I love this. And for her own reasons. So we were both passionate coming into the project. And then you take, I usually take like six weeks to beat out a treatment or a, I like to do a beat by beat 
outline of the opera. So scene by scene, beat by beat, we know what's happening. Mm. Because that way the composer can also look at that and say, yes, no, 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 can we make this? Because they're planning, right? So they can also make a musical outline. So let's say, oh yeah, in this scene, I'm gonna use this type of instrumentation to get this kind of effect. And I think I can do this in this scene. So we're both mm. filling in our stories. And then once we are all in agreement with what that outline um, uh, implies, then I go off and I write the libretto. I usually take six weeks, three months to turn out a libretto. Um, and then the work starts because then the composer says, and then we do a reading of just the, the, the book and you, you fix, fix, fix. And then uh, I often have done uh, where I read the entire libretto out loud to the composer and if there's a producer or a dramaturg so that they hear it from my voice because it's important mm. that you hear from the author's voice especially in a in a format that's going to be presented vocally right so um and well, then you I mean... work back and forth the composer has her ideas like justine I would send me back i said rewrite this fix this do this how about if we do it like this so the piece keeps growing with both of our input and i say no 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 you're off here this is we need to go this oh my god this is great do more of this can you repeat this and so it kind of like impacts it, the growth on each other but once i hand it off i give it to the composer and then i'm at i keep myself open for the composer as they are dealing with things they're going to want changes and i will do them mm. So what's, what I find really interesting is that you, it seems that you already had like this very deep involvement in uh, professional working relationships and you've already done a bunch of projects. Then you went to, to grad school. So what <laughs> you want to you tell us how, how you went there and what goals you were trying to meet by well, taking on this yeah, thing? You know, I was, I graduated in 2017, right? That was okay. when I got my master's. So I was in my fifties and, mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been doing this for a while and I just wanted to, I keep telling people, I just wanted to sharpen my pencils because mm. I wanted to, I wanted to push myself through a discipline and a rigorous curriculum that would it's like you don't need I don't need to learn how to write a play I know how to write a play I know how to write a libretto and I can always learn more but I just wanted to get my basic writing skills in tune I wanted to sharpen them I wanted to hear other things I wanted to just to look at the fundamentals of writing mm -hmm. and uh and so they invited me and I'm the only playwright they've ever invited and, and that happened because Paul uh the president president Paul uh LeBlanc uh and I met at a party um, <laughs> we, we have a mutual godchild and we were just talking godchild it was great and, and he's the nicest guy and we were talking and i was like you know i really want to go up and get my masters because i wanted to sharpen my pencils and and he's like well you know i have a, a writing program <laughs> that was <laughs> deep, do you? that's I'm amazing like, okay and uh yeah so from that meeting and conversation he made this available and made it possible for me to attend and and uh, and then you know ben um brought me in and i think ben is awesome 
Yeah. I think Ben Nugent's great guy. He's a cool dude. Great <laughs> One of the best. He's sharp. Sharp, sharp, sharp. Sharp and supportive. Super supportive. And really, I feel like sees all of us really how we are. He's able to look right into you and see what you're doing and what you're able to do. Which is yeah, been... and simple. It's like succinct. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, so I was bringing my, for my pages when you do. Mm -hmm. Remind me, it's been a little while, but. 30, 30 the, pages every five weeks. Pages and everyone, <laughs> you know, I would just bring in 20 pages of a play. And yeah. we would look at that. And then I remember there was this one play I've been bouncing around for like 25 years. And I'm like, oh, now it's about the mother goddess. No, it's about incest survivors. No, it's about. And I brought in this scene and just from, uh, he made a comment that clarified the entire play that allowed me to excise an entire level of the play out because it was taking away from, and he just says hat and a hat. And I'm like, okay, he picked up on the essential problem I'm having with this play from a scene that doesn't even uh, showcase the reason for the, but just refers to it. And that's like, dude, sharp. Dude, sharp. So wait, I actually had a question for later, but I, it, this is a really nice segue into it. I wanted to ask you about um, frustrations and getting stuck in your writing and what, like any advice for other writers, like how do you get past that? I know because I, I personally want to hear your advice because I'm six days away from turning in my thesis and feeling very stuck on some things. And so you just talked about that where you were kind of hitting this wall and then somebody just says one thing to you and it opened up a whole new level. I just wonder if you'd want to speak about that a little bit, those frustrations and getting stuck in writing and how you get past it. I don't know. I mean, uh, what do I, uh, I don't like, know. Have you ever just abandoned something? I have don't you ever usually, just, say it again. Have you, yeah, I was just saying, have you ever just like started something, gotten really into it, and then finally gone, ugh, I can't, I'm moving on, and... <laughs> oh, yeah, but that, yeah. you know, uh, you know, you try something out, and it takes you someplace, and then it doesn't continue, but maybe it's taking you far enough to a place that you can use it somewhere else. You know, so yeah. I usually have four or five projects going on, and, and uh, at the same time. And, and they're in different stages of uh, development, production, rehearsal, uh, research. Like I'm writing, I just, I took two years. All right, this is not gonna be your organized kind of podcast, no. but I took two years <laughs> off from writing uh, uh, two years ago. So I guess it's now two years ago, yeah. So I, I took time off and I said, look, I moved up out of the city with my husband and my dog died. Um, Oh. oh, I'm so sorry. Elmo the Wonder Dog is now a legend. Oh, still a wonder. Still a still. wonder. Um, so um, we moved out of the city in 2010 and we moved up to the woods in Rhinebeck, which in is Rhinebeck. pretty great. Uh, and it's really isolated. And, Known and for I its really fiber festival. Huh? It's known for its fiber festival. It's, yeah, it's <laughs> that's the how I know festival. The, the wool, yes, the wool festival. Yeah, the wool festival. <laughs> it is, in fact, known for that. Yeah. Uh, but I've just been writing constantly since I moved up, and I have I was in a theater company, the Half Moon. I created my own writers' company up here, Howl. Um, 
but I've been working constant and and I turned around after I finished X Gay Bar, and I was like, what the fuck? And I had this pile of really really terrific work, like eleven different plays, operas, musicals that people hadn't really I hadn't exposed it. I hadn't started sharing it. So I was just writing, writing, because I'm always on, under the gun. I think oh, I'm going to die soon. I'm, I know I'm going to die soon. Uh, you know, is this the moment? All right, all right, it's not. All right, let's just keep writing. <laughs> and I always think I'm going to die. So I, I need to get stuff out. And I just been writing and writing. And then I was like, I got to sell it. So I picked up Seth. I'm sure I'm not answering any of your questions, but no, keep I going. It's Seth interesting. Godin's book, uh, The Practice. Seth Godin. And if you know him, he's in PR, he's in marketing, really sharp, 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 sharp. And my friend is new, my friend Antonio said, you need to read this book. And it's about sharing your work. And he, there's, it's short, short, short chapters. It's inspirational, motivational, but it's really clear. And it spoke to me about, you can't just make a great loaf of bread. You have to bring it to the market. You got to put it on the hook so people can buy it. So it's about putting your bread on the hook, right? Bringing it to market. So bringing your bread to market, I said, okay, I need to do this. And that was maybe about, now it's like three years ago. Mm. And I'm done writing. I'm not going to write anymore until I'm, so consequently, I did all these studies. I did, I, uh, I made my own uh, Excel spreadsheet study of uh, Lort theaters in this country and get theaters that do gay plays and operas and musical theater. So who are these people? What are their affiliations? Who knows me? Who do I know? And they're all color coded. And so I worked on that. <laughs> I was like, I have been so busy. I've been getting so many productions and so much because of Wow. And I'm like, this is really interesting. I used, I used to just bemoan my outcast state. I'm like, nobody's gonna produce me. No one knows me. So let them know. And so mm. a lot of that, my energy went into promulgating my work and I'm, I'm seeing really, I'm seeing the benefits of that. So now I've started working again, started writing again. Mm. Um, but because that I've started that movement in that field, you know, of getting my work out there, now it's going and I, I don't have to work so hard to keep it going. I can mm. write again and do this and that. But um, there was a question you said about um, getting back remember. to when you're stuck. And it's like, I don't get stuck because I just mm. jump onto something else. Keep going. Yeah, just, uh, so, death, so, so death compels you. Death mm. compels you and hang your bread on a hook. I think I'm going to remember those two, those two bits. <laughs> on to the next shiny thing if you must. <laughs> or even it doesn't have to be shiny. It can I'm, be covered in mud. I'm True. So, so you talked about moving out of the city and getting this sort of surge. You're going to take time off, but you get the surge of inspiration. And I love when I speak with writers and they say to me things like, I was laying in bed one night and this character started speaking to me and two years later I had a novel. So I'm wondering for you, how and when does inspiration usually strike for you? Was the silence of being out of the city uh, a cause for it? Do you hear a character before you, you're you putting the pen to paper? Like, can you put a, a finer point on what inspiration looks like for uh, you? Yes. I, I can't. I can't tell you what inspiration looks like. <laughs> I, I'll tell you, my first image was in the early 90s. I'm 62. So in the early 90s, and I was a, a an actor and a singer and a performance artist. 
and a waiter. And I remember I was walking my, I had a first one act that I wrote in the early nineties that kind of put me on the map. If you actually bought that map um, that they were trying to sell <laughs> called prom queen. It's about these two high school girls who uh, find the perfect diet and they become vampire junkies and one kills the other one on the night of the senior prom with holy water. And they kill that's the one I want to see. Oh, that's a good piece, man. That's the one I really want to know about. It's awesome. So, and I got the idea for that. And I wrote that in two nights. I was walking home from work and I see, and I'm more on the uh, Midtown West, like in the 50, 54th Street, 9th Avenue, where I used to live. And so I saw this woman walking by me with the nails, the lacquered nails and the Long Island outfit and just the hair with the coif was just, and she had this big leather Gucci bag, but it was filled with something. And I thought I saw it move. <laughs> and that was enough of inspiration. I said, I bet she's got a baby in there. She's going to drain its blood. <laughs> now, I have a classical reference here because Bram Stoker, Dracula, the brides of Dracula to have use a carpet bag and they bring this baby out into the bedroom and they devoured, you know. So I'm like, oh, this is like Dracula. And so I let myself think about it for a day. And then I sat down and wrote Prom Queen about these two girls in New Jersey. We need to hear that. <laughs> I really want to hear that. I, I, <laughs> you know, and I made a short film. I also work in video and film and on my website on YouTube. I have a Noiseball YouTube website. That's my nickname and my company name, Noiseball. Uh, and on my website, my personal website, I have links to this stuff, but I've made a, a, a really good short film of it. I like it. Um, but it's like, I also got inspiration. My, my thesis was Wild About Whitman. And it's a two-person play about the day Oscar Wilde and Walt Whitman spent together mm. during Oscar Wilde's first speaking tour. And it's a, a historic fact that no one knows about. Except the other motherfucking playwright on the West Coast who has a play called Oscar and Walt. And mine is called Wild About Whitman. And I'm like, it's the same, it's about the same event. So, yeah. you know, like sometimes that happens. There'll be the same story gets covered. Like the Wild Party gets two different productions at the same time. So it'll be interesting to see if we both can join. There's plenty of material. They should be <laughs> about these guys. But I got that because my husband was reading this book about Oscar Wilde and said, did you know that he, I was like, no, I didn't. And as soon as I saw that, and I, I really, I thought that the title first, I thought Wilde about Whitman, that's the name of the play. It's a two person play. I got it. It's a hit. Um, and I, I remember telling people the first time I said, yes, yeah, Wilde about Whitman. And they were like, oh, no. I said, no, no, no. It's a good title for a marquee, you know? So, and then I just, and then I was like, oh, this is way too smart for me. <laughs> you you got to deal with Oscar Wilde or Walt Whitman. Yeah. And these guys are no slouches. Formidable. No. Yeah. You know, I grew up idolizing them both. And here I'm going to play with them. And I realized that the amount of research I was going to have to do needed guidance. And that really pushed me to mm. uh, Mountain Rock. Because I said, I need people to help me with this because this is, this, I'm not as smart as these guys and I got to figure it out.
And so it really helped me know that my choice was uh, smart because that was, it was like a two year uh, lab that I was getting mm. experts in to help. So. Wow. And then, you know, I remember uh, like they never had a, a playwright. And I don't know if you still have it, but they have like, you can chat room or teams or, <laughs> teams chat yes teams maybe like cohort chat but this is for everyone they're like i'm not gonna write a play this is a fiction part there was some tension with my really because how dare you ask me to read a play i'm not gonna read a play i'm here to write fiction or not fiction so oh, i'm non-fiction sign me up <laughs> i know I'm like, <laughs> it's like we all learn from each other and you know I had a great time. I thought it was, I learned from the teachers there. I had fantastic mentors. Um, Richard uh, and Carrie, right? Richard and Carrie. He's not there anymore? No, oh God, not that great. I know. Mitch Wieland? No. Dara Cloud? Dara just came back last semester. Yeah. Dara's yeah. like my best friend. Dara's Dara great. and I run Howl Playwrights here in Rhinebeck. Oh, okay. And Ben uh, let me pick, because they didn't have people who um, had a lot of experience writing plays you know, on the faculty, they let me pick and invite a faculty member of my choice. Yep. And I was like, oh, can I get Tony Krishna? How about Dara? Because uh, she's really smart and she's a, she's, she's a great friend, terrific writer. And she's been teaching at Goddard for, you know, 15 years. Oh. Which is also a low residency program. I yeah, in Vermont. It. Yeah. So I'm like, and so I brought her in and she was my mentor twice. And I and I loved working with her because we had such a connection anyway. And she would really help mentoring me along this product. But I picked Mitch because Mitch was an expert in um, Hero's Journey. Oh, and I've been using that paradigm, but not really mm -hmm. understanding it. And I really wanted to take an opportunity to apply it. and it, it fits the, the story yeah. of my play. And he's great, great guy. And I really was a wonderful chance to have him help shine a light and, and hone what I'm trying to say from that perspective. Whereas Richard was is just a, a wonderful nonfiction writer who um, he was my first or a second one. He, I think his his comments had such um, they were gentle and so strong and so smart and just uh, it was about basic writing. Why are you writing this? Why are you like so? And that's really what I needed. Mm. Um, yeah, and they were great. And then you know those uh, sessions at before dinner, those three minute sessions. Who's gonna read for three minutes? I'm like, give me five. That's right. Um, and it's I never had enough. a blast. I know I love those things because you really got yeah. to hear little snippets. Yeah. Um, that was cool. And I had I had a blast doing that shit. And they were very good audience. Um, they also let me so because of uh, my theater background. And Rebecca, did you do this as well? Because um I was giving coaching sessions for public speaking. 
for two reasons. Um, I was going to. I was I was going to if I continued in next year, but I decided that instead of going on to the next shiny thing, I should try to use the MFA that I'm about to <laughs> about to get for a minute before I return to that. But they are That's considering stupid. creating a dramatic writing track at Mountain View because I went to them and said I I want to write libretti. I think you it's know. a great idea. <laughs> libretti, so. I think it's a great idea. Um, you know, it's like, well, they let me, uh, so I was teaching, I wound up teaching yeah. a workshop every night. Like, and yeah. I was like the only student they let teach a workshop. Yeah. Because it's just like, you get 10 minutes, let's play. And you know, writers sit in their room writing all day and they need a little coaching sometimes. So yeah. it, was, it, was, it was a blast. Especially and for reading, because I found, I've talked about this, I think, uh, even on this podcast before, where after a while, at the end of that week, where you hear so many readings, um, it, it starts to get that kind of, there's a, a Charlie Brown teacher voice that starts to kind of take over <laughs> the whole thing. And it's just simply because writers are not trained to read out loud, you know, and okay. so there's that kind of many people just just harken back to the, oh my gosh, I've been asked to read out loud in class from third grade <laughs> during the headlines. And, and then when someone's good at it, you see the difference. You absolutely see the difference, right? And so I, I, for every semester I've been there, I've been like, Ben, will you please let me teach people how to read? <laughs> you know, and it was about to happen, but we'll see. I, I may head back there in a year or two, so. You know, uh, fiction dovetails so well into cinema. Yeah. You know, in screenplays that, um, you know, something, I, I could see a screenplay, playwriting track that's what so it was. It, we we're calling it dramatic writing, um, and it should be uh, official by next year. Um, so that way, it, it invites all the playwrights, screenwriters, you know, librettists. Librettists, absolutely. Well, that's what I was going to do. So, absolutely. Right. Cool. Um, and Darren, you know, Darren knows all that stuff. She, yeah, she and I are Darren's working great. on that. We, we, he and I got a commission together. We've been adapting, um, uh, you know, that book, She's Come Undone, Wally Yes. Lamb. So we're yes. adapting that as a musical with, uh, what? Uh, yeah, Michael Holland and I, we adapted 12 Angry Men as a musical, and they gave us a, a commission to it, the three of us now to adapt this. That is really, I just wrote that down. That is so exciting. I'm going to be watching for that one. It's That's so cool. It's, it's this hard story. Oh, my God. Do you know, I don't know if you, when's the last time you read it, but it's a harsh now that you've brought up some of the specific works that you're working on, Rebecca and I both have choices of yours from yes. your incredible portfolio that we want to talk about. But if you don't mind, I have to lead off because I think I'm going to explode if I don't bring this up. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, delegates, And Sarah Palin. So I'm going through this list of wonderful works, you know, the adaptation of High School Musical, etc. And I'm thinking to myself, what is I Am Sarah Palin? So I clicked through and I actually watched a bit of it. And first of all, the woman who is singing looks so much like Sarah Palin that I truly believed it was briefly Sarah Palin. And I thought, how did they contract her to do this? So I think my twin questions are, what was the inspiration for this? And did Sarah Palin ever witness or comment on this work? Because I would love to know what Sarah thinks about it. I'd love to know that too, but she, unless <laughs> she's, she's been flitting around the, the internet, 
Probably. looking for uh, herself, which I could see that happening. No, she's never seen it. Um, it was like, it was a, uh, an exercise. So, um, I had, uh, so again, the A American Lyric Theater, which is, uh, where I met Justine Chen, I was in there with fantastic writers and composers and you would mix and match for They would teach you the building blocks of how to do an opera. So you, a recitative is this, um, a two person scene, a three person scene, a chorus, a, an aria, um, and so you would experiment with different. So this one was for an aria, and we, it was it tied in with. Uh, we had to first do a chorus number, and this and this, and then you tied it in with an aria, and it could be from your same imaginary project, and you're doing it with the same composer. So the first one I did was uh, "Who Is Sarah Palin," and that's from the press corps. And it's all these questions about who is Sarah Palin? And then I am Sarah Palin is the response. She's come to answer the question. Who is Sarah Palin? I'm Sarah Palin, motherfucker. And I used uh, her speeches. You know, I probably retooled some of the language, but I went along exactly the stupid, irrational logic that comes out of her mouth. I followed them like, well, okay. So I'm working on something for Trump now. I'm just like, I read, I read part of his deposition and I thought it's not possible. Someone is that stupid. And it is, so but, it is possible. but it is possible. <laughs> it is totally possible. And thank God art is coming out of it because what else would we do? I don't know. I know. just burn in hell, I guess. But, um, so I don't know. What was I saying? Well, we can, we can insert. I am Sarah Palin here. <laughs> no, <laughs> note to, note to sound engineer. And that's, um, uh oh god my memory has just really been it's either age or cannabis but um what's his name oh golly it's a wonderful composer who did i am uh sarah palin i just saw him he was in chicago anyway and 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 a terrific singer (laughs) this is why i'm so popular among our other artists like i have a name And, you know, Justine and I actually worked up uh, the opening of when we had to do a trio. That's when we worked together. Uh, We did the opening of our operatic version of Psycho. And that's a a project I totally want to work on. But Oh, that's so cool. And it was great. It was totally great. And Justine, that's why I was like, oh, my God, she's so good. Um, But it was really interesting. And we started it with when she comes in out of the rain to sign the motel book. And it's her and him, but the first person we see is the dead mother, and she, it's her ghost, it's her spirit, and it's clearly it's his inner thoughts that she's speaking to, and so she's always in the room circling, but it's just these two who. Are, and it's really cool, and and she did great music for that. Well, I actually wanted to talk about modern opera in general, uh, through your piece, um, The Screams of Kitty Genovese. Um, And, you know, I was thinking about how my my first um, exposure to 
modern opera was at the Hartford Opera Theater. Um, a really good friend of mine, Michelle Hendrick, was the director there. And until then, I my experience of opera was on Sundays. That's what my father played. It was kind of like his church. We listened to, you know, I heard opera in the background of my whole childhood. And, you know, Madame Butterfly. I mean, like, this is not Rigoletto. I don't know. And so when I saw this piece and saw that that combination of that classical training, those, those classical voices, but they're singing about phones and bridge games and they're wearing IZOD polos, you know, as their, as their costume. And it's like staged in a modern apartment. And I just remember being completely blown away by the melding of those two, those two genres, kind of like modern musical with that classical uh, format. Um, there was no speaking, you know, and so in The Screams of Kitty Genovese, what I find really fascinating, that opening scene where Franny is like a contralto, she's singing that really powerful voice. And underneath that voice, that really powerful contralto, very classically trained voice, is this electric guitar riff. And I was like, am I hearing it right? You know, and I went back, listened to it again. I'm like, listen to that. It's really amazing. And I was just wondering if you wanted to talk a bit about modern opera in that way, that taking that classical format, that classical training and mixing it with this modern context. Like you're talking about writing about Trump and I am Sarah Palin. Um, well, um, you know, the just modern opera, I, you know, I'm certainly not an expert on, on opera or modern or classical opera. I just, um, I try to keep myself happily ignorant until I need to uh, learn something. Mm. Um, and then I can apply it. You know, I think we have to make opera. I, I think what we're experiencing right now is a, uh, is a real surge to find um a way find ways to make this art form relevant to a contemporary society and um there's you can't take away the beauty and the, the magnificent talent and the power of the these classics that have been in our catalog for 300 years 400 years that the, mm. but they we need we need for it to stay a um, an art form that speaks to who we are right now, it needs to reflect our stories and it needs to reflect the sounds that we hear. And so there are lots of changes. Um, uh, Will Todd, uh, who wrote The Screens of Kitty Genovese with me, he is a, he's a, he's, I think he's at the vanguard of a new type of composer because he, he's fluent in uh, classical, compos classical composition, jazz, pop uh and and choral you know so he has this huge palette and he can 
he uses that palette really well. So yeah, there is this kind of guitar riff underneath it. And then that, it, throughout the opera, that guitar rips into these really violent sections. And it's just like yeah. this, to the, with the percussive and it's just this slamming violence and, and harm. So, um, I think he's just telling a story that happened now. And I think those sounds and those feelings, like there's uh, the long walk, right? Stephanie Fleischman wrote the, the, the great libretto and Jay Howard, Jeremy Howard wrote the score. And Jeremy Howard, I think he has a third name. Um, and this is a, a, about um, one of those guys who detonated bombs in the Persian Gulf and, and uh, over there in Iraq. Bomb, you know, they, and it's about coming back into American Toe's family after mm. living like with that. And it's, it's a great, it's based on a book. Um, autobiography and uh jeremy howard beck um and he uses he combines sounds and he'll combine at this one point where he's using this intense guitar and it mixes with the ululations of these middle eastern women who are mourning and it's like i remember i thought my body was gonna pop because it was so exciting on on uh, a nonverbal um emotional level that your body mm. had to react to it you know so I, I i think it's awesome when we can we can tell stories that pertain to us reflect us challenge us uh, on the ways that we live that come out of how we're living when we're living we're living in the most amazing important uh threshold of time ever mm. This is why I'm like, well, all this shit's going down. I'm like, this is the best time to be a writer because if you can't find something to write about now, then fuck off because you're not trying. Yeah. It's like, and also wake too, up and look. Opera has always had this air of being for privilege and being yes. for upper crust. And this just seems like by opening up the musical genre yeah. and opening up the topics wide open, it welcomes in a whole new audience, which for a lot yeah. of, of arts that are struggling to find patrons, it just opens it wide open for, for younger generations, for new artists, for diverse voices. It's a really exciting movement in opera. It is. It really is. And it's like, uh, you know, it's hip opera. Um, hip -hop. There's, we have to define, we have to broaden what we uh accept as opera and if yeah. opera is sung drama as it we can agree on it's a sung drama mm. that's opera then that can grow to include different uh modalities of that sung drama you know different uh cultural um influences in the music in this language in the story but if we can agree on that, then we can start somewhere. And and I, we are in a, you know, I just watched The Hours. Did you watch The Hours? No. Um, PBS, no. it's from Lincoln Center. And oh, it's that great book by um, Michael Cunningham about, you know, The Hours by uh, Michael Cunningham. And it's like, it's Virginia Woolf and yes. it's Mrs. Dalloway and 
and they made an opera out of it. Kevin Putz, who puts who, um, fantastic. And I thought they did a great job. And it, it's, it's really intense to see how opera can, I used to hate opera. I used to hate, I was, I was such a big, I was like, they had to drag me in to the program. Cause I'm like, we're just secondary citizens. It's always about the composer. It's about the composer. And I fought that for a long time. I'm like, you know, it's not just the music. Music doesn't mean anything if it doesn't have words. Mm. And then I realized, and I think I realized it really when I was in Chicago, that it's the opposite. Opera actually takes language and immortalize it. It shines it into such um, a spotlight because it'll take a word or, or a, a syllable or a thought and it expands it or opens up its interior life. So it takes language beyond language. And I realized that in, in Chicago when I was watching Turing. I was like, oh, I see. We're not secondary. <clears throat> we just, we have to remember who we're writing for. I'm not writing this for the audience. I'm writing this for my composer because together we're writing for the audience. You know, but I have to give something my, my writer can be inspired by and can do change and, and fulfill. So what, so that, that made me remember something that you shared with us um, when we were communicating before this um, about an organization called Credit the Librettist. Oh, that it's a, it's not an organization. It's a movement. Oh, it's movement. It's from the Dramatist okay. Guild. Uh, Don't organize it too strongly or it'll die, right? So if, <laughs> let it be alive. Um, so what is it? What is, you want to talk a little bit about that and yeah. uh, tell us Mark why? Campbell, Mark like Campbell and Michael Corey are the leaders of the uh, Dramatist Guild Opera Committee, of which mm -hmm. I am now a member. Uh, in fact, I'm going next week to Pittsburgh with them, Michael Corey and Deborah Vort and um, Mark Campbell and someone else to, to go to the Opera America, the national conference. Um, so what was the question? Talk I just, I wanted to know about that movement of credit the librettist oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and why so, that's a necessary thing. Well, okay. Um, when you have an opera written by two people and it's written by two people. Mm -hmm. When you see that opera then reduced to composer's new opera, libretto by, it makes mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it makes it an inferior position. Yeah. And so credit the librettist, meaning it's an opera by blah and blah. It's not this one's opera with words down here. It's this. Right. And because yeah. uh, historically, and now a lot, librettists get short end they don't get mentioned you know mm. it suddenly is all the composer and so um it became it you can see these credit the librettist videos on youtube it's a series of they're short some of them are longer but it's interviews with librettists talking about why librettists are important as if you have to that's you just look at that there's a need for a committee to say why we're important so that well. leads to a problem yeah, it does. You know? yeah, absolutely. So, and they're they're witty and they're funny and they're really championed by all our composer allies and and you know. And so you just bring awareness to the fact that um, operas don't just pop out of some composer's brain. And right. 
David, in the spirit of crediting the librettist, because I know that we're going to be winding down kind of soon, plug something for us. Tell us what you're working on, where we can find you, what you're proud of. Give us, give us your, your elevator pitch so we can credit you. Well, um, I'm going down to Oslo Rep in Sarasota uh, next April. So this is where you plan ahead. But they're doing a second production of 12 Angry Men, the musical, and uh, which I hope will eventually hit New York. Um, and that's pretty awesome. That's with Michael Holland, who's the composer. And Peter Rothstein is the director, who's now the artistic director down there. He just directed The Life and Deaths of Alan Turing, the opera that I had. So I've been really excited about getting uh, both of those done and both with Peter, who's a, a brilliant director. Um, I'm working on a, another a blues opera called That Hellbound Train um, with Lisa de Spain, who's a fantastic blues and jazz uh, composer. And we're writing that. We're going to be in the University of North Texas in January doing a piano vocal workshop with full chorus. Oh, um, very cool. And it's great. We've designed that to exist both in music theater and in opera like Porgy and Bess, Sweeney Todd. Uh, and that's a real, it's a great, it's a, it's a great adaptation. It's an adaptation of a great short story um, by Robert Block. And he won a Peabody, right, for this 10-minute, 10 10-page 10 short story in the 50s about this hobo who sells his uh, soul to the devil for uh, a one moment of perfect, perfect happiness that he has to pick. And he can't. So there's that, and then um, and I'm writing, I, I, I'm writing a new play. I'm gathering my forces, and I'm really excited about this. Um, and it's the second part of a trilogy. The first part was waiting for the ball to drop, which is about 9/11, the year 2001. This is following some of the same characters. And it's a zombie play. It's a zombie apocalypse play. It's called The Last Supper. And it um, and it's it's uh, Grand Guignol, you know, Grand Guignol, the French uh, theater that would do all this super bloody, super uh, uh, sexualized uh, theater for 60 years. They created all their stuff got co-opted by film horror, you know, because they could do it better than them. But it's like eye gouging and face burning and hysteria and rape and really you know it's craziness blood 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 so i'm doing it um the last supper is it's an examination of the united states right now and so the the zombie apocalypse is clearly it, it is a zombie play but it's a metaphor for how we're eating each other alive and it's really so this, I'm in my research period right now. So I'm going to have 12 people, you know, and I figure no one's going to fucking produce this anyway. So I'm going to write what I want to write. They say, oh, 12 actors, you're not going to, I don't care. So I'm going to have 12 actors because I want to pattern it on the Last Supper. Um, and lots of blood, lots of blood, lots of blood. Um, but it's about like the main issues, the polarized issues that happen in this and there's a zombie apocalypse and some guy's trying to kill himself so it's um, a laugh riot it sounds like a really important piece honestly <laughs> it sounds like and i hope it's a laugh riot because otherwise what are we gonna do 
Oh, I know, just cry. What else will we do? Exactly. Exactly. If, if Sarah Palin isn't being turned into an opera, then what are we going to do with her? <laughs> to keep making opera right with blood. That's like, that sounds actually very therapeutic um, to our current age. You have given us, you have given me, and I know Rebecca, so many things that we can't wait to follow, to look yeah. up. Uh, it's just great. been brilliant. And I'm, I'm so proud that you're an alum of the Mountain View program. And we're just so excited to continue to watch what you produce. And I hope that one of these days you'll be coming back on to tell us that your zombie apocalypse reflection on America is coming to a, a state here. So thank you. Yeah. For the time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and to look at my work. You can find the latest works of Assignment Magazine on our website, www.assignmentmag.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at assignment underscore mag and check out the official Twitter of the Mountain View MFA program at SNHU, which is just at Mountain View MFA.